It's a joy for me to be with you this morning. I've thought about this quite a lot over the last months. Had you asked me if I would have the chance to, to preach again last fall, I'm not sure what my answer would have been, but I'm sure internally I would have thought there's no way. I'm appreciative of the chance to bring you God's word, to teach you some of the things that I've learned. Appreciative of the opportunity, Josh, to come here and preach. And I thank you all once again for your prayers for me and for my family, for my wife and children. Our text is from Lamentations. So if you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me back to Lamentations 3. Or you can turn to the back of your bulletin and it is printed out before you. We'll read from 19 through 27 and 31 through 33 again. Though my text is mainly from 19 through 27. As you're turning there, let me provide some scriptural introduction to Lamentations, since this is a one-off series. Similar to Psalms, the five poetry chapters of Lamentations are also written to capture and express the experience of Old Testament Israelite sorrow and grief. You see, for Israel, whether in the Old or New Testament periods, mourning was an all-too-common feature for the life of God's people. And not only did Israel suffer from disease or famine or drought, but they were often oppressed, conquered, and enslaved by their neighbors. And at times, these afflictions were the result of Israel's own sin. Regarding the historical background for Lamentations and for our chapter, the kingdom of Judah had experienced an unthinkable loss as the result of the people's sin. There was the destruction of Solomon's temple and the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians in 586, so roughly 600 years before Jesus' birth. Moreover, God's people were not only mourning the loss of their temple and city, but they were dealing with collectively and individually the affliction directed at them by their conquerors and also from the terrible living conditions left behind in the aftermath of this war. This passage, our text this morning, highlights this horrible reality and their narrator's reaction, Jeremiah's reaction to this tragedy. For Jeremiah, there is a deep internal struggle to understand and explain on behalf of Israel and himself why this has happened and also how should Israel then live in light of this unthinkable loss, to borrow Francis Schaeffer's aptly titled book. As modern Christians, these questions deeply resonate with us since, as God's people, we too also experience affliction. So my friends, I ask you this morning, how should we then live in the face of affliction? To address this question, let us once again turn to God's word and ask that the Holy Spirit may enlighten our hearts and minds. Listen as I reread again Lamentations 3. 19 through 27, and 31 through 33. Hear the word of God. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it, and it's bowed down within me. But this, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies 
they never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And the Lord is good. He is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. May God bless the reading of his word. It is absolutely true. And it's given to us because he loves us. Let's pray. Father, it is good and right that we come to you. You are our life. We owe all that we have to you. Pray that you would teach us from your word, instruct us. May we hear your word. May we live it. May you live within us. May you touch us. May you be with us when we face affliction. May we grow in the grace and strength of Christ. We ask that you would fill us Holy Spirit today with your presence. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. What does it mean to suffer well? What does it mean to suffer well? Of all the questions floating around in my head since it, I was first suspected I had cancer in October of 2021, up through my remission this past May, and even up until this very moment this morning, this is maybe the one question, a main question, that has continually dominated my thoughts. Now, I know what you might be thinking. You might be thinking, Jeff, brother, is that even a proper question to ask? I mean, suffering, no matter the cause or the type, it's, it's terrible. Isn't it enough just to survive the suffering, let alone trying to suffer well? Now, if you're thinking that, I, I get where you're coming from, because in some respects, that question appears very arrogant. Sounds like an arrogant question to ask. However, we all will endure affliction, or we already have. It's unfortunately a part of human experience. But since it is a part of human experience, and therefore unavoidable, I think it is an important question to consider. And I would suggest, since we are all going to suffer, it is probably better to suffer well than to suffer poorly if given the choice. So in actuality, I'm not sure that that question is so much arrogant as it is a profoundly Christian way of framing the subject. Since we are going to suffer, it is worth considering from a biblical perspective what to do when we face it. Now, I am not at all here standing and claiming that I suffered well these past nine cancer-defining months. That, in fact, would be arrogant, especially when I reflect back on some of the private meltdowns I had last fall, and some of them were quite bad. Many of my days were filled with panic, fear, loneliness, guilt, and sorrow, all normal reactions to affliction. The question is, what do we do with that? How is it channeled? Where do we go? 
So believe me when I say that I'm still wrestling with this issue and will be for the rest of my life. But you and I, we are not alone. Our narrator, Jeremiah, in our text wrestled with this question too. In fact, scripture is replete with examples of God's people enduring affliction. Some of that affliction is the result of sin, as it is in the case of Lamentations 3. However, other examples include suffering that is due to sickness, that is due to persecution, that is due to even comforting others, that is due for the purpose of sanctification. Some of you may be experiencing affliction for one of those reasons right now. But while the causes and circumstances of our respective sufferings will vary, I believe considering the scripture's perspective regarding affliction and how to suffer well will serve to unite us in a similar trajectory toward greater sanctification in Christ if we are open to the question and the idea. Unfortunately, my dear brothers and sisters, if you are anything like me, that is an hardly, a very hard thing to be open to. First, affliction is just that, it's affliction. Who wants to face affliction? And second, suffering well presumes that there is a purpose for affliction, which means affliction plays a divine role in God's plans for us collectively and individually. If true, then you and I, we need to maybe reevaluate our hearts, our view of affliction, and even how we engage it. You see, affliction cannot be wished away. It cannot be avoided. It, in fact, plays a vital role in our Christian walk. But what can change, what can change by the power of the Holy Spirit is our perspective and response to it. Consequently, because affliction is an ever-present reality in this fallen world, as Christians, as his church, we are called to live a life of lament while trusting in the Lord's divine sovereign purposes for us. So what's our starting point? Where do we begin? Well, I have three points for you this morning, three gospel truths that I want to communicate. And the first point is this. Because affliction is an ever-present reality in this fallen world, we must refocus on the Lord's hope, which is greater than our present circumstances. Look again at verses 19 through 20. This is what Jeremiah says. He says, I remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. To begin, let me first say that refocusing on the Lord's hope does not mean we are to pretend our affliction isn't real, to ignore it, to just drown it out. I mean, that's just an impossible task, though people have tried. There was no amount of binge-watching Netflix TV shows and movies that I could do to make my cancer disappear. But trust me, I tried. So whether you're enduring sickness, whether you're enduring marital issues, or someone at work is constantly antagonizing you, escapism is not the answer to affliction. Nor is pretending affliction doesn't bother us and therefore keeping it to ourselves. That approach will just eat a person up alive inside and it'll make things all the worse. I also tried that for a time. It doesn't work. Nor are we Nietzscheites who follow the mantra, what does not kill me makes me stronger. 
The Lord is not seeking to make us more self-reliant, quite the opposite. So manning up and pushing through, that's, that's not the answer either. And that's not even God's purpose for affliction. You see, the human strategies, the coping mechanisms that we devise to deal with pain and sorrow, no matter the cause or type, are not the answer. That is just our attempt. It was my attempt to gain or exercise some type of control over the situation. And that is not suffering well. And Jeremiah, our narrator, he, he doesn't do any of that, actually. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't keep it to himself or try to muscle through it. On the contrary, he fully acknowledges and embraces what has happened. He accepts it. He sees it for what it is, and then he expresses himself. His affliction, my friends, leads him to lament. Though it includes these elements, lamenting is different from just crying, grieving, and venting one's emotions, though it includes that. But lamenting, it's a type of prayer in response to affliction. Lamenting is talking to God about your pain. It's an invitation to cast your fears and sorrows on the Lord. And it has a purpose, a divine purpose, to build trust. And we know that Jeremiah is lamenting to God, that is, praying about pain, because he spends five chapters, including our text, highlighting the extreme severity that he and the people are facing, their anguish. He's even addressing the root cause of it all. We can vividly see the effect that Judah's destruction has on him emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Josh read it earlier. In verse 17, Jeremiah says, My soul is bereft of peace. And in 18, he says, I have forgotten what happiness is. It's also taken a physical toll. It's affected him and the people in a physical way. In verse 19, the term wanderings. In Hebrew, the term literally means homelessness. And this homelessness is not referring to homelessness from poverty or losing a job or even by choice, but it's due explicitly to exile. So this type of homelessness, it's unfixable. It denotes a sense of permanency. Jeremiah's lamenting does not ignore the fact either that God has allowed this to occur. On the contrary, a significant number of verses, many verses, prior to our text in chapter 3, begin with God as the subject of the affliction. Josh read those as well. Here are a few of them. He has driven me and brought me into darkness. He has made my flesh and skin waste away. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. And there are countless others. Though the language is purposely hyperbol hyperbolic in nature, it's to illustrate that the narrator, that Jeremiah, understands what has happened to the city, what's happened to the temple, what's happening to the people, what's happening to himself. And he's letting us know that this is by no accident. This is not by chance. This was not a random occurrence. And yet, though verse 20 says our narrator's soul is bowed down within him due to this God-ordained affliction, he and his soul, they do not stay bowed down. Why? Why doesn't Jeremiah stay there? It's because his lamenting, his prayers, they refocus on something else that exists beyond his present circumstances. 
he juxtaposes the reality of the situation against the backdrop of an even greater reality because he knows this is found in the person and character of Jesus Christ. He knows this to be true. Look again at verse 21. It states, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. But this, this I call to mind, and I have hope. That this is a ray of light. You see, during my course of cancer journey, I had a decision to make. I could either try to deal with this diagnosis on my own terms, in my own strength, and by myself, or I could take this to the Lord, the author of my affliction, as well as to the body of Christ. Option one offers the illusion of control. And for a sinful person struggling to come to terms with reality, it is enticing. After all, option one allows a person dealing with affliction to question God's motives and goodness, ignore the pain, wallow in anger and self-pity, withdraw from others, and dedicate themselves to busyness. Quite the opposite, option two offers no control. And for a sinful person struggling to come to terms with their reality, it is not as enticing. After all, option two forces a person dealing with affliction to surrender to God's motives and goodness. Accept the pain, seek the Lord, engage others, and dedicate themselves to waiting. Some of you are dealing with affliction right now and are faced with the same decision. So is Jeremiah in Lamentations 3. He chose option two, the harder route, but I think the suffering well route. But he didn't choose this because he was less sinful or, or more enlightened or spiritually superior to his kinsmen, but because his lamenting, his prayers called to mind the hope found in the person and character of the Lord as he talked to God about his pain. His prayers focused on the Lord's covenant faithfulness and mercy. He remembered that the way through it all was with and by the Lord. Which leads us to our second point this morning. And it's this. Because affliction is an ever-present reality in this fallen world, we must remember the Lord's love. We must remember God's love, which is greater than our present circumstances. Look back at verse 22 and 23. Jeremiah writes, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In this verse, the Lord's hesed, that is the Lord's steadfast love or loving kindness, is a covenantal love. It's a type of love bond that is absolutely unbreakable. It's relational in nature. It binds or seals together two parties forever. God has this type of relationship with Judah, with Jeremiah, and he also has this type of relationship with us through our union with Jesus. But it's, it's not unbreakable because of Jeremiah, the people, or because we are faithful or because they or we are sinless, or because they or we are somehow worthy of God's chesed. On the contrary, Lamentations 1.5 makes this quite clear. It states, 
The Lord has afflicted her for her multitude of her transgressions. But if the Lord has afflicted her, why is Jeremiah optimistic? What reason is there to hope? Why hope? Here's why he hoped. Because the Lord swore an oath to be their God. Because Jeremiah knows that God, despite his people's unfaithfulness, he will remain faithful to them in spite of their sin and in the face of their present circumstances. God cannot go back in his word. He will not go back in his word. That is an impossibility. And this is not the first time that God's people sinned against him and were afflicted. Consider the golden calf incident in Exodus, the spies entering Canaan in Joshua, the 300-year period of the judges, just to name a few. In each case, and after every affliction, God always renewed his covenant, restored his people, blessed his people, and dwelled with his people. His mercies are never ceasing because his word is tied to his character and his character is tied to his personage. And because God will never die, his word and his promises will never die. And this is the same for us, my friends, just as the sun rises each morning, bringing with it the prospects of light and life and warmth. So the promise of God's mercies to us, despite our present circumstances, it's even more reliable than the dawning of a new day. So when you find yourself facing affliction, remember that it is not you or the affliction that is in control. It is not you or the affliction that it has the last say. It is the Lord who is in control. It is the Lord who has the last say. And because the Lord is merciful, because the Lord is faithful, because the Lord loves you and me, we do not despair because he is with us and working his will through us. For the lamenting person, for the person pursuing option two, affliction ultimately serves to draw us closer to God. We get more of Jesus, not less. And that is true loving kindness. True covenantal love. <clears throat> Look again at verse 24. Jeremiah states, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. God's covenant was intertwined with the promised land vis-a-vis -vis the people's use of the land and God's presence amongst them in the land. It was God's wedding gift to them they entered Canaan and he gave it to them. The groom gave his bride this gift. So the continual occupation of the physical land by the people was the sign of God's ongoing presence among them and covenantal love for them. So to have the land taken away, to have it stripped, and to have the people sent into exile was probably the most painful affliction that the people in Jeremiah had to come to terms with. To have the land taken away would have appeared as if God was removing himself from among them. However, there was one group. There was one tribe amongst God's people that never possessed the land, that never received an allotment of land in Joshua. And that was the Levitical priests. While the other tribes were sustained in the normal way from the produce of the land, the priests always owed their survival directly to God. Remember, the priests live off of the fruit, 
the grain and the meat offerings brought to the Lord in his house by the other tribes. So when Jeremiah says that the Lord is his portion, he is confessing that his hope ultimately resides with God in the spiritual realm, not the physical realm that was lost. He is confessing that God represents the true land, his true dwelling place. The land is not his resting place. No, his resting place, his hope, his comfort is found in the presence of the Lord himself. So when we lose our, hope, our health, when we lose a relationship, when we lose physical possessions, when we lose our standing before men, our real portion is the Lord himself. We have hope. And losing those things are not signs of God's absence or displeasure. Quite the opposite. God is using these afflictions to conform us into the image of his son, Christ Jesus. This is why James can write in the midst of affliction. He writes this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. My brothers and sisters, as Josh encouraged me personally, I encourage you, lean into and trust the Lord. Trust him with your pain. Trust him with your suffering. Trust him with your affliction. He promises to draw near to you and to love you. He is our only hope and our true salvation. Which leads us to our third and final point this morning. Because affliction is an ever-present reality in this fallen world, we must respond to the Lord's salvation, which is greater than our present circumstances. Look again at verses 25 through 27. Jeremiah again writes, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. By refocusing on the Lord and remembering his love, our narrator highlights what his and the people's response should be to this promise of goodness and salvation. Considering the circumstances, though, one might expect a call to arms in response to this terrible affliction. But Jeremiah doesn't encourage the people to retake their homeland or retaliate in the future. In fact, he doesn't prescribe any kind of proactive response whereby they take matters under their, into their own hands. Instead, Jeremiah calls on the people and himself to wait, to seek, and to bear. And, and not only are they to, we, to wait and to seek and to bear, but they are to do it quietly, and that is without complaint or grumbling against God. Probably the most difficult thing I had to do during the past nine months was to wait. Boy, I was doing a lot of waiting. I was waiting on doctors to examine me. I was waiting for surgeries that were canceled to be rescheduled. I was waiting for the surgeries in the midst of it, waiting for the results of the surgeries. Once diagnosed, I waited for hours as the chemo coursed through my body. I waited for my hair to fall out. I'm waiting for it to come back. I waited to hear if I was in remission. 
If I could sum up this whole experience, the whole past nine months, in one word, it would be the word wait. There's a theme of waiting. It's all over the pages of Scripture if you look for it. We don't like to do that as Americans wait, but it's there. One of the most oft-quoted verses in Isaiah states, They that wait, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. My favorite waiting verse is in Psalm 40, verse 1. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. Literally, in the Hebrew, it reads, I waited while waiting upon the Lord. Paul writes in Romans 8.23 that we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You see, for me, God was introducing me to the biblical theology of waiting on him. The affliction was just the tool he chose to teach me this important and much-needed lesson. And this is what he was doing with Jeremiah and the people in Lamentations 3. It's what he is doing with you when you face affliction too. The waiting, the seeking, the bearing teaches us the most important lesson of all is to trust the Lord. Trust him. Trust him with your whole being. Trust him through the journey, not just for the outcome, through the journey. Trust him with your very being and soul because he will show himself to be faithful to you no matter your circumstances. But Jeff, how can we do this? How can we wait? How can we seek? How can we bear? How can we do these things quietly? How can we refocus on the Lord? How can we remember his love? How is that possible in the face of affliction? In our own strength, it's not possible. Though we are called to suffer, apart from our union with Christ, we will stumble and we will falter. I am testimony to that. I did that. But in many respects, that's the point. That is why Jeremiah lamented to the Lord. That is why I lamented to the Lord. That is why we are called to the lament to the Lord. We daily bring our pain and prayer to him and ask the Holy Spirit to do the work of waiting, to do the work of seeking, to do the work of bearing, and to do the work of suffering well in us. Our call to suffer is actually a call to trust in Christ, the one who truly suffered well, Christ's whole life was centered on suffering well as he waited, waited to die. That was his purpose. He faithfully lived out his life of lament. He endured the ultimate suffering found at the cross so that you and I might be recipients of the Father's covenantal hope, covenantal love, and covenantal salvation. Portions of Isaiah 53 say, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And then in Hebrews 4:15 we read. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Our call to suffer well is a call to let ourselves go. It is a call to acknowledge our sin. It is a call to confess our need. It is a call to cling to Jesus Christ. 
And so we throw ourselves on the mercy seat of Jesus and we yell out, help me, Hosanna, help me. And I tell you, my friends, I tell you, and I'm a testament, he will answer you in your day of trouble. He will do it. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's stand in prayer. Father, we come before you. You are so kind and gracious to us. You are so good. We love you. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, your mercy, your compassion, your long-suffering, your patience. And we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for our salvation, that you plucked us out of the pit and set us on a rock. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to minister us to this today and this week, that we would be a blessing to the people that we run into. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.